We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. They're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons' frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Man, that was a rough one. My name is Alan Williams. I'm here not with James D. Virgilio, but with my friend, colleague, Chris Musgrove, one of the smartest football minds I know, one of the more insightful people as he's watching a football game. We're going to hear from him in a second. Guys, we've got a great show. Hopefully, we're going to talk about what went wrong in this game. Why did Florida collapse against Kentucky? But first, let me thank a few new patrons. Brian Levine, Ryan Dick, Connor Salas. What up, dude? Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Alexander Brow, thank you guys for supporting the show. Really appreciate it. Grover, Chris, welcome to the program. Yo, great to be here. We talk football every week, so this feels very apropos that we would have some time on the podcast. This is great to be here. Yeah, thanks for filling in for James. He's off scaling mountains in Montana or something. Hopefully he returns safe and sound. Yeah, he picked a good week maybe to bail out and an interesting week for me to jump in. Uh, Maybe we could even get right to it. Putting this game in context, I have never had a 31 year win streak what is it like to lose it for you is this a big deal not a big deal how's it landing on you I think both when I want to be like 
feel better about the game. It's okay, whatever. 31 was a long time. We're going to lose eventually. We almost lost last year. I mean, we couldn't have come closer. But at the same time, I really liked the streak. I loved, you know, kind of having that over Kentucky because, you know, they pants us in basketball so much that it was nice to keep that going because it just feels embarrassing, honestly, to lose to them. It says something about our program that I don't want to be true. So I don't know. I, I'm not real excited about the fact that that streak is over. And, you know, there's a lot of chatter about a lot of different things. Um, you know, you could talk about the field goal and the refs. And it really, you know, the Gators could have won this game. But in the end, you know, I'll read a quote from Dan Mullen here. We got to get back to work. There's nothing good about losing in my mind. I just don't like it. What if we hit a Hail Mary on the last play? Besides, besides us celebrating on the field, we'd still have the same issues and the same problems. I think that's really true. Even if we had won this game, it would have exposed a lot about the flaws in the infrastructure of the program. If I was asking you, Grover, what overall went wrong in this game? Yeah, you know, it's interesting watching it. I wanted to pay so much attention to the offense and what is Dan Mullen going to do and how's he going to use Franks and – Man, halfway through the game, all I could all I could think about was this defense is shockingly bad. And it had been so long since I've seen a Florida defense. Man, there was no swagger. There was nobody flashing. There were no negative plays. There was no getting off the field on third down. There were no punts. To the point where I just, it's almost like it eclipsed everything else in the game to me. It was not offense, was not Franks, was not anything, was not coaching, was not play calling. Man, it was defensive line. It was I was really shocked by the level of defensive line play in this game. I know in the previous week, I one of my big takeaways, we have a lot of dudes on that defensive line. And they looked big and strong, but they weren't up to the task this week. They got bullied by that Kentucky offensive line a little bit. And I think the thing that is a special, especially painful for Gator Nation this week is there was a lot of optimism coming out of week one. I know I actually took a step up. I was a little higher on the team coming than I was coming into the season. And I think we realized there's a little bit of a little bit more of the four win team from last year in this iteration of Gator football than we wanted there to be. The rebuild is going to take a little longer. And that's a disappointing note for Florida fans is that it's not going to be a quick fix. And I don't know. I, we could have won, right? There was a few key plays in the game that if it had gone differently, Florida might have pulled out the victory. What did you notice about that? Yeah, you know, I think there are, every game hinges on some key moments, and this one was no different. I think in the first half, uh, one of the, the last drives of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, Florida drove down right to the goal line. Frank scrambled right. He dove out of bounds for what looked like a first down on the two-yard line. Uh, Florida lined up, and classic Mullen, just the perfect play call. They run an option right to the short side. It looks like it's going in for a pretty easy touchdown, and the refs blow the whistle. And at that point, they review it, and it's not a big deal because he was just a, a yard or so short, which usually is not a big thing. But then second and one from the three, Franks takes about a 10-yard loss on a sack. Uh, incompletion. I think Scarlett dropped a little angle route out of the backfield on third down, and it's a field goal. And I think that was a huge momentum play that a lot of people maybe you wouldn't see. Or you, you know, it's easy to look at the the noticeable ones, the busted coverages and things like that. But when I'm watching a game, 
I'm like, we just went from seven points and really gaining early momentum, keeping balance in the offense, to settling for a field goal. The second one I thought was the beginning of the second half. Kentucky's first drive to stop them, to get them at third and seven. Uh, Alan, we sat there and we're like, okay, well, here's the play. You know, you just stop the run and stop the quarterback scramble, and you feel like you're going to get off the field, get the ball around midfield, and have a great chance to to start the second half well. And sure enough, he escapes around the left end and scrambles for about a 12-yard gain, and there the drive goes from there. Those were two that stood out to me. What about you? I mean, obviously the field goal blunted so much momentum. And there and there's a actually like probably like 15 of these plays, and we could break them down and look exactly what happened in each play and where do we come up short. You know, there was a moment where we could have gone for it on fourth down about midfield, and we gave the ball back to them, and it felt like we didn't recover um, the momentum of that. Like I was like, we need to score because we're not stopping them. There was a moment, of course, a lot of missed tackles in the backfield, missed sacks, big QB runs. But if we were playing Alabama in the SEC championship game, it would be great to dissect those plays and really draw them out because what do we need to improve? The fact is, if we, if we did them all all correctly, we are still in a tight game with Kentucky. And that shows, like I said, where we're at as a program. And so you can look at it. We could have won. Maybe in some sense you could say we should have won. I don't know that I want to take that tack. It looked like Kentucky was the better team on this night. But, yeah, there's a few key plays in there. Um, if they go Florida's way, it, it comes up us. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, that there are big plays in every game. But, you know, maybe the biggest plays of the game were third and two when Kentucky ran the ball for three yards. And it wasn't the big third and 17 touchdown pass, though it was. But it's not being able to get off the field third down after third. It was, it was an accumulation of all the little plays that Florida usually makes that would have been kind of masked or hidden by a couple big plays if they went Florida's way. So totally agree. Um, okay, what about Franks? Second game this year, where are you at with Felipe Franks? You know, if you would have said that we have lost this game, you told me, like, you know, on Friday, the Gators are going to lose. My reaction would have been, well, Felipe deteriorated and just had an awful game. But that really wasn't the case. He didn't play well. I mean, he played better in the first half, kind of reverted back to some of his bad habits in the second half. I wouldn't say he played well, but he wasn't a disaster. I don't think he was the reason this team lost. And that's a weird thing to say. Like you said about a Florida team who normally is able to get done the type of things that they need to 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 beat a team like Kentucky, even if they're a little down and out. And we just couldn't. I mean, like we're going to lay this game at anybody's feet. It's going to be the defense. What was your impression of his play? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think he did well. I mean, honest again, not to keep putting it on the defense, but, you know, the second half when you're down one score, down two scores, when you're on the field so sporadically because the defense can't get off the field, I think it's hard to gain rhythm, and it's hard to start hitting on all cylinders. Uh, if you go back and look at the game, in the first half, he had a couple great drives, really safe throws, put it in the right people's hands, move the ball, put some points on the board, but it was just too sporadic as far as 
getting the ball back, having a good drive, but then not being able to get it back in time. So, again, I think he did fine. He's not – it wasn't an amazing performance, but I don't think that was the problem. Yeah. And I'll say a major concern for us last week was the run blocking of the offensive line. It didn't look good against Charleston Southern, and it didn't look any better, maybe worse, against Kentucky – like I said, I feel like you're very insightful about these types of things. If you, When you watch the run game, especially as someone who's watched Dan Mullen at Mississippi State every year as Auburn plays Mississippi State, what did you notice about that? Yeah, well, look, I think it's very similar to what I just said about Franks, that it's the running game needs a little bit of, like, mojo. It needs to pick up steam. It, it needs uh, some reps to get going sometimes. And you just didn't have that. Now, and you might – put that on some play calling in the first half. But in the second half, when you're losing and you don't have the ball, it's hard to commit to the run. And I'm telling you, like a Dan Mullen team, when they do well, the running game comes alive in the second half. All those kind of body blows from the first half, they add up. In the third quarter and the fourth quarter, you really start getting downhill on people. But again, when you're losing and you don't have the football, it's kind of hard to get the running game going. So I think it's, for me, I'm not as critical on the running game just because I don't think they had the opportunities uh, that normally they would have if the defense was holding their end of the bargain. Do you feel like they abandoned the running game? I think so. It was a strange game plan to me. Now I'm in favor of taking what the defense gives you. I, I hated Nussmeyer, and we talked about this a ton, running into loaded fronts and basically not taking what the defense gives them, not being smart, not being tactical. But in this game, I it felt like they really wanted to have Franks lead the offense, and there wasn't there weren't a lot of run calls. I mean, there was times where Franks threw the ball like six, seven times in a row. That was strange to me. The game was never out of hand. It felt like we could have been a little more committed to the run. Now, I was looking at their defense. It seemed like they were playing too deep safety. It looked like you would want to run into that front. But maybe Dan Mullen's concerns about our offensive line being able to get a push up front made him be hesitant to call a lot of run plays. Maybe he felt more comfortable throwing the ball. But that's strange with a redshirt sophomore like Franks who's so up and down. Did you expect to see us run the ball better? I did, although I think Mullen is at his best when he's balanced and he's putting both of those threats on a defense. Um, you know, the the one place I felt like the run was abandoned at maybe an inopportune time, I mentioned it earlier about the key play in the first half when Franks was knocked out of bounds a yard short of the first down. It's second and one on the three-yard line. So basically you have two run plays to get one yard, if you get one yard, now you got first and goal from the two or even the one if you get it a little further. It just seems like the perfect time to establish the run, and you have potentially six runs to get it in from the three. And again, he went from shotgun and threw a pass that ended up in a sack, and then it ended up quickly into a field goal. So I, I do think there were opportunities to run the ball more and to establish it. Uh, but again, overall, I just feel like it was more of a rhythm issue and more of a possession issue than it was – really truly abandoning the run and we didn't have a lot of possessions this was a, a game that Kentucky held the ball because we couldn't get them off the field yeah it felt like we did pretty well on offense in the first half and we, even though we didn't end up with a ton of points but 
I think we'll think about this game down the line as where Kentucky pushed us around along the offensive line. And let's talk about our run defense. I think that is the story of the game. So let's look at the defense for a second. It seems so obvious to me that we missed David Reese. And it didn't show up against Charleston Southern, but it sure showed up here. Number 44, Rashad Jackson, is a guy who's largely not played until this year. Um, but he was on the field most of the game, except for when he was a little dinged up. And maybe it's because he knows the the calls for the defense. Maybe the coaching staff doesn't trust the other linebackers. But he really killed us in this game. Mm-hmm. Totally. We, me and Alan watched the game together on Saturday night. And it just seemed like every time there was a key play or somebody was in position, it's time to you know make a play and get off the field. The play was not made. And more times than not, it was number 44 whose number kept – kept flashing in those in those times so I think he had a really rough game and in those games I mean that's all you need the kind of drives Kentucky was making you just needed one play one negative play on second down to put him behind the chains one tackle on third down to get the punter on the field and maybe flip field position and so I just think those you know he might have had three or four really negative plays but they came at really inopportune times and yeah I think just really hurt the team overall now, a Todd Grantham defense needs neg- to produce negative plays for the offense. They need sacks. They need tackles for loss. They need to get teams in bad down and distance so they can use some of the exotic bl- blitzes that he favors. There weren't a lot of negative plays. Now, I don't know. This, I think, could be one of two reasons. One, our pass rush just wasn't effective. Or they wanted to kind of mush rush Terry Wilson who I have to say played really well in this game. Night and day different than he looked in their first game. And so what I mean by mush rush is that they're pushing up the field, but they don't want to get out of their lanes and give him a chance to escape the pocket and hurt us. Now, if that's what they were trying to do, they were also largely failing at that because he killed us on scrambles, on broken plays, and on designed runs. So if that's what we were trying to do, we largely failed. And then our secondary, specifically the safeties. Uh, Obviously, two of their big touchdowns, you can just point right at one of our safeties and say, you blew this play. And those are two of the biggest plays in the game. What did you notice about Grantham's defense that left you worried? Yeah, for me, I, I just think, again, it was the lack of people flashing in the backfield. So dropbacks, he was never pressured. Well, you know. One or, tw- one or two times that he spin out of trouble and actually hurt you with his feet. But most of the time he sat in a super clean pocket and had time for uh, receivers to run long routes or, or just make a nice, calm decision. And then same thing in the running game. You just never saw somebody flash in to, to cause the running back any trouble. And to the point, I remember on Saturday, I turned to Allen at one point and just said, you know, I don't know, maybe I don't know the – you know, it can be hard to know the assignments of the defensive linemen just watching the game casually. But almost like a, they're they're scheming not to get up the field or something because nobody is doing it. But also you weren't seeing linebackers blitz and create problems. So, yeah, I just think that, again, was one of the most worrisome parts of Saturday night was that defensive line play. And they were getting blown off the ball on run plays. Benny Snell was getting the edge. He They were moving us three, four yards down – the field, even on their, I guess, worst plays, they're still picking up three to four to five yards. 
we were getting no momentum, no forward pressure. We weren't stuffing the point of attack. All around, a really bad effort. And then, and this is all coaching, it was really disappointing. Out of a timeout, in a crucial point of the game, we have 12 men on the field. Now, usually I don't like to take one moment in the game and one mistake and say, man, you're, you suck because you did that. But that seems to be inexcusable. That's something that Kentucky does. They you know don't cover the wide receiver on fourth down in the crucial play of the game. Todd Grantham's a veteran defensive coordinator, and I was surprised that that happened. Yeah, that, that was crucial. Third and seven, third and eight, Kentucky's going to run the ball and be more than happy to punt it. Third and three, they're going to know there's some running plays they can, they can call that might cause you some problems. And look, it was a great play call. It was a counter to the short side. Instead of running right up the middle, they gave you the look like they were heading up the middle, and they pulled two guys outside and sealed the game right there. But, yeah, that's a call you don't make on third and eight, but at third and three, you can make that call. Disappointing effort from this defense, and they weren't great last year, and we expected them to take a dip last year because of all the talent that Florida had lost. But there's a lot of returning guys. They're missing, obviously, David Reese, and I think he would have made a big, big difference. But the rest of the guys have to play better. No C.C. Jefferson again this week. But I, I feel like there's enough talent on the field that they shouldn't get pushed around by Kentucky. Now, maybe we'll get to the end of the year and be like, Kentucky was rolling people. That loss looks better, you know, by comparison. But even right now, I, even if that's the case, I, I'm not sure that that's forgivable. Because there's some if there's talent anywhere, there's talent on the defensive line. The linebackers are obviously super suspect. Um, but in the combination of those two teams, they, two units, they, they really let the team down, in my opinion. Okay, let's back out and look at this. I don't know, where did this leave us as a program? Where does this, I don't know, take us moving forward? Whoever wants you ask first. Yeah, so I was even going to say you looked at offense, you looked at defense. I think the, the two people that carry the most burden are the quarterback and the head coach. I asked you about Franks. What about Dan Mullen? Well, we've said long time on this podcast that Mullen was hopefully a high floor guy, and typically that means you beat the teams you're supposed to beat. Now, looking at this game, I don't know if we're supposed to beat Kentucky. Maybe we're we're closer to them talent talent wise than Gator fans would like to admit. And like I said, this was a four win team last year, and you don't shake that off always. That sometimes you just make a coaching change and and stuff flips, and you have a you know, a quick change, but more often than not, things linger. I don't know if it changes my opinion of him overall, but maybe that he's less of a wizard than I wanted him to be in terms of whipping this team into shape and getting them competent quickly. Now, again, hopefully this team is going to grow and develop. A well-coached team does. It does soften my excitement about the rest of the season, what Dan Mullen's going to be capable of in year one. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I think my big question coming into this game was how high of a floor will Mullen have this season? You knew he was kind of the high floor coach, that the high ceiling, you're, That's what that was the question. With the right players in the right situation, could he kind of bust out of that glass ceiling that he had at Mississippi State? And so I think you're looking for, yeah, this is a great chance to establish a high floor for the year. So it was really exciting 
that prospect to come beat Kentucky by two or three scores, and you would feel super great about where he is and where the program is. And I, I agree. It was a little bit of like a busted balloon. And, yeah, I just think, like I said, quick fixes, you know, that's just – that doesn't always happen. And I think you want – you. You want to believe there's a quick fix, that there was just something last year that was a little bit off and you tweak it, and this year, you know, back to nine, ten wins. And it looks like you may have to just kind of put your put your head down and keep grinding and get kind of gritty for another year or two and keep building. Okay, Chris, you're an Auburn grad. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show this week is that you get to play Mississippi State every year. So you've gotten to take a long look at Dan Mullen – his offense, his coaching style. What's your experience of him? What are your What are your thoughts, even heading into him being the coach at Florida? Yeah, and that can be a little bit complicated, just because it's hard to untangle Dan Mullen from Mississippi State, which are two different things altogether. But I'd say usually there's two ways to look at it: that the years that Auburn was playing Mississippi State, when we had significantly better talent, which was you know a few of these last few years. Uh, I, I felt generally okay, especially once we got up by one or two scores. I felt if you could get up by two scores on a Dan Mullen team and make them more one-dimensional, you're just in a much, much better spot. But the years that he would keep it close and maybe had a Dak Prescott or had more equal talent, I mean, he, he was really terrifying to play against. And I think the number one reason why is because he's just, in my opinion, an awesome play caller. Like, I never wanted to be going against Mississippi State within a one-possession game in the fourth quarter when they had the ball. You just assumed he was about to call the right play. And there were so many – I mean, I go back to 2010 when we won a national championship. In that second or third game, we played Mississippi State. He dialed up this great play down the sidelines, last drive of the fourth quarter. And I don't remember who the receiver was, but he dropped it on, like, the 20-yard line field goal sends it to overtime and we just barely escape out of Starkville with the win and that's the way that's the way I see Dan Mullen an excellent play caller is if he can stay balanced and stay within a within a score he's really dangerous once you put him in you know down one or two scores put him behind the the chains a little bit it's a much different experience and and the talent which I you know it's a Mississippi State thing more than a Dan Mullen thing but those are my quick thoughts on that which, you know, this makes me think, uh, Dan Mullen at Florida right now, when I watch this team, I couldn't help but think on Saturday night, I'm not sure what this team's identity is. Like, what are they? What is the Dan Mullen era at UF? What are they trying to do? What are they doing? Do you have any thoughts? What is the identity of this current Florida team? Well, one thing Mullen talks about is getting relentless effort all the time. That's almost kind of a joke that he says it so much. I don't know that I saw that from the players. I don't want to disparage them because if guys are giving effort and they're just not executing, that's one thing. But it didn't look like a team that was going hard all the time. He talked this week about learning how to practice and that guys are going to learn from this. Hopefully they will uh, because they're not there yet. I don't think they're the type of team mentally and physically that Dan Mullen wants them to be. And you watch Mississippi State, whether by – always design or by personnel, they were excellent at running the ball, and this team is not. And I think the offensive line continues to be a real weakness of the team. 
that group has got to be transformed either through coaching and technique or just new players. We are missing Brett Heggie, who's maybe our best offensive lineman. But these guys have been together for a long time. They've been disappointing for a long time. And I think if you're going to have an identity and be a physical effort-filled team, the place you would look at is the, is the offensive line. And that's not there yet. So I don't think that we do have an identity. The team doesn't know who they are. I think there is some talent, not as much as we want. And certainly at positions, it's very, very thin. But moving forward, something they're going to have to look at. Now, that's one of those questions that can sound nice. Like, you don't have an identity. Does that matter? I think it does in this case. I think it. You're we're lacking leadership. We're lacking intensity. We're lacking effort in places. And lacking talent in others. That's really tough as a football team when you don't know who you are or where you're headed. And if you're built around a quarterback like Felipe Franks, your identity is going to be up and down. It's going to be inconsistency because that's who he is. I would love to see us get that fixed where I, I don't want us to run the ball all the time. I don't want us to line up like 10 offensive linemen and play like Iowa football or something. I want us to be able to throw the ball, but I don't want to be smart when we do it. And I, we're not there yet at all. Let's talk about some bright spots. There were a few. What did you know notice as like a bright spot? Yeah, and I just mentioned this about Dan Mullen, but I just think he is an excellent play caller, especially in the red zone. So if you notice this, this is an amazing sign. I can tell you as an Auburn fan, I feel like every touchdown we score is just by grit and effort. And it is so amazing to watch a play caller. Both of Florida's touchdowns were in a sense were wide open, and they were perfect play calls. The first one was on the 17-18 yard line. They had been moving the ball down the field. And, look, this is a simple short side of the field, play action, tight end pop pass more or less. But it just was called at the perfect time. The formation was set where the safeties were away from the short side. And he was open by five or ten yards. I mean, it wasn't even close. Uh, the, the touchdown in the second half, they went to more of a bunch set. Again, you'll see Dan Mullen. Man, he just kills the short side of the field. He's so good over there. But I th- there were two tight ends and kind of an H-back set up to the inside of the of the double tight ends. Both tight ends cleared out towards the middle, and the H-back just ran a simple little flare route, first and goal from the four or five. But it was wide open, easy throw, and those are huge plays in the red zone. And so I just think you can expect more of that with Mullen. That's really one of, I think, his high points. Anytime you get a wide open touchdown, that's awesome. Agreed. I, I was impressed. Even like you mentioned the touchdown that we didn't get because the referee stopped and reviewed the play. That was a walk-in touchdown to Scarlett. And yeah, great play calls around the end zone. That is a breath of fresh air because it felt like often we were running our head against the wall in previous regimes about getting into the end zone. It was like, okay, must champ teams, if the defense didn't pick up the ball and score, even if they Got tackled on three-yard line. I was like, okay, we're going to go backwards into a field goal. But it feels like Dan Mullen, when he gets close, he's going to score, or at least going to put us in the best position possible to score. What else did you notice? Yeah, I just think Dan Mullen in general has managed Felipe Franks really, really well. If you go back and you watch the game, you're going to notice players spread out from the on the outside of the numbers. So he's going to use the full width of the field, But I think he does it just to simplify the game for Franks. The more players that you get out of a certain area, and I think most of the time he loves working to the short side of the field, 
But there's other times when he was in the middle of the field and he would have at least three wide receivers spread out beyond the numbers and you just leave six players in the box. And there was a couple times that he found running backs open on little option routes. But it just it simplifies the game for a developing quarterback. There were two or three drives in the first half where he was killing that short side and they would line up with two wide receivers on the short side. The inside guy would run a clear out The outside guy would run a five-yard stop. But it was so important to get Van Jefferson and Tony and these other playmakers the ball on little five-yard stops and let them run for another 5, 10, 15 yards, uh, which they did. And I think those are the kind of positions that Franks can really succeed in. Cut the field in half. Don't look at these 12 players. Just look at these four or five and make a quick decision. And I think Mullins put him in a great position to do that. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the play calling right now because it comes in bunches a little bit. Like if you watch Kadarius Tony, like he would catch a pass and then they would line him up in the backfield and he ran the ball from the quarterback spot. Did that twice essentially. Those bang bang plays like that. We call a couple throws in a row to Jefferson. We're trying to get Grimes the ball. I like it those kind of get it to those guys plays because it involves them, gets the defense thinking about different things. But you can tell just even the distribution of the carries from Scarlett to P. Ryan to Davis that they haven't any they haven't figured out who's good at doing what yet or who fits in what position. Feels kind of sporadic. And some of that could have been attributed to what you were saying earlier, not having any kind of flow to the offense. But I don't know. I, I'm still waiting to see a little more coherence to what we're doing and how we utilize our players. And I think we have a ton of talent at wide receiver and running back. So you can't get everybody 10 touches. That's not going to be the case. Now, as Mullen continues to hopefully operate in the, under the principle of taking what the defense gives us, that'll inform what we're doing. But I think you've got to let guys get a little bit of a rhythm to what they're doing, whether it's a running back. Um, and maybe a guy like Scarlett gets even more carries. Now I'm a big proponent of resting guys, making sure they're fresh and not giving one guy 30 carries and one guy two, but maybe looking to achieve a little more uh, of a hierarchy or in players understanding their roles a little bit better. And maybe that will get there by the end of the season. Okay. Let's put a wrap on that game and let's take a minute to look at the national games and the sec games before we turn our attention to Colorado state. All right, around the nation this past weekend, some of the big games on the slate. First up, Mississippi State 31 at Kansas State 10. Well, James's favorite coach, Joe Moorhead, goes into Manhattan and wins. It's not an easy thing to do, no matter how good Kansas State is. I was impressed by them. I, I don't know if they're as dynamic as they wanted to be in this game, but that's a good win on the road. For sure. Uh, all right, UCLA 21, Oklahoma 49. This is closer than what I thought it was going to be, given UCLA's performance the previous week. It's funny to say a 49-21 game was closer than you thought. Uh, I still think we're waiting on Chip Kelly to figure out what he wants to do in UCLA, and Oklahoma continues to roll. Yeah, isn't this interesting that Chip Kelly – I thought Chip Kelly coming to Florida would have been the perfect match. And this was the thing, when he was when he was at Oregon, you kept saying, what if he was at a place he could recruit five-star talent? 
you know, what if he was at a place that he could get even better guys into this system? Now, I'm not even sure what kind of system he has. Like, he seems maybe a shell of himself is not fair. But, yeah, do you know what he's running, what he's doing out there? It's hard to know because he wanted to play Wilton Spate, which is not the type of quarterback you would normally envision in his system. Now, whether that's because he learns some stuff in the pros he wants to implement. But he's playing the true freshman, you know, who fits his style. But oh, that's a tough that was a tough job for them at Oklahoma. We'll give him more more of the season. Next up is UGA forty one, South Carolina seventeen. This is close to the beginning, and then you know Georgia burst the dam and fl- and flooded them. Someone mentioned this looks like an a, an Alabama type win, or we like to call it a boa constrictor win, where they just squeeze the life, and all of a sudden you end up with a forty one seventeen score. Not encouraging if you're a Gator fan. Agreed, or an Auburn fan. Clemson, maybe the game of the day. Clemson twenty eight, Texas A and M twenty six. You have to be impressed with A and M. I, I think people were hopeful that they could give Clemson a game, and they gave them everything they wanted. They had a chance for a two-point conversion there at the end. Clemson, I don't know what to make of them in this game. If A&M is good, then that's a great win. If A&M is not so good, that's maybe a bad sign for Clemson. Penn State, 51. Pittsburgh, 6. Well, Penn State, who almost, almost, almost lost to App State last week. Much better result. I mean, Pitt is not great, but it's at Pitt. That's a somewhat rivalry game that's been you know renewed. I don't know. I guess if you're a Penn State fan, being a little more encouraged than you were last week. And maybe that's a good reminder not to not to put too much stock into week to week. You know, it's just week two. Even thinking about Florida, Kentucky, a lot changes in these first couple weeks. All right, in a very Stanford score, USC three, Stanford seventeen. I took Stanford in this game because I didn't. I wasn't a believer in USC yet, and not a magical score for Stanford, but we were concerned about their defense, and they showed up, and holding USC to three points, that's pretty impressive. All right, enough of the national games. Let's get to the SEC roundup. Grover, I'm going to walk through these games. Tell me what you think about each of these results. Nevada 10, Vandy 41. Vandy's for real. You think so? I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> They're fine. Good for Vandy. That's good. Arkansas State 7, Bama 57. Yeah, good for Bama. Um, you beat Arkansas State. Yeah, beat Arkansas State. So here's what I'll say. Um, I know again, you have a very tortured relationship with Bama. Yes, I'm a lifelong Auburn fan. And so as me and Alan have known each other, every year I've got an angle on why this is the year that Bama's not really for real. And uh, that's been a tough way to make a living the past 10 years, by the way. Uh, but here's my only slant this year, is that no defense with a pulse has really game planned to it yet. So I just want to see, given some game film, last year nobody had game film on him. This year people are starting to get film, but nobody's had a pulse yet. So I just want to see a defense that's prepared for what he can throw at you and to see if maybe there's a way to keep him in the pocket. I'm not totally convinced he makes good decisions. I think he's gotten by and has made some good decisions. I'm not sure if he sits in the pocket a whole game that he'll make uh, enough good decisions. And I'm also completely okay and know that I'll probably eat those words like I do every year. But that's my that's my best shot this year. Well, I mean, the fear is that he's going to turn them into a juggernaut by playing 
the way that no other Alabama quarterback has played and giving them a shot in the arm. Maybe you're right, though. He has He's a little wild back there at times. Now it's worked out for him so far. Interesting theory. We'll keep an eye on that. Southern Illinois, 41. Ole Miss, 76. I mean, I really don't know how that score is even possible. And as a fellow SEC West team, I can't wait to play that defense. That feels like a fun game. Is every Ole Miss game going to be, like, north of 100? I guess. I mean, goodness. I I don't know much about Southern Illinois, but, again, I can't wait to play that defense. All right, ETSU 3, Tennessee 59. Not much to see here. Southeast Louisiana 0, LSU 31. Is that low-sounding? Yes, but I think that's the kind of game that that's an LSU blowout, right? They're like a Alabama junior. They care, probably care more about the zero than they do the thirty-one. So I think that's that's right, and I think they'll take that all day over the Ole Miss seventy-something to forty-something. I'm sure that that's true. Actually, Wyoming thirteen, Mizzou forty. Mizzou forty. The school, the SEC school, I never know what to do with Mizzou. Is that and, forty good or is it bad? I yeah, don't know. Who, who knows. And in three weeks from now, are they going to be losing 40-13? to 13? They just feel like they've had a chaotic existence in the SEC, and I never know quite what to make of them. I'm not a believer yet. Maybe I will be when they trash us. Alabama State 9, your Auburn Tigers 63. Yeah, so we talk about there are the good-bad teams that you have to show up for that might win their conference, and then there are bad, bad teams, and this was the bad, bad team. So this game was over at halftime. Really not a lot to take from it. Are you feeling good about this Auburn season, though? Are you, like, projecting on the high end or the low end of either Auburn variants? That's a fair question for most SEC fans. I cannot answer that, and maybe I'll get to why later. Okay. That's an impossible question for an Auburn fan. That's good to know. Arkansas 27, our foe this week, Colorado State 34. Hey. Yeah, this one – okay, I'll tell you why this one is so important to me. It's just good to see at least one team in the SEC West that didn't take – seemingly a step forward everybody else is looking dangerous Mississippi State looks like they might have something LSU which by the way LSU's their quarterback is usually like a three on a scale of one to ten this guy might be a five or six even or six which is like a a 9.8 for LSU that's (laughs) scary so anyway with all these West teams taking these big steps forward it's nice to know at least one of them looks like they may be in trouble okay while we're in SEC mode here, I thought it'd be fun to take a moment having an Auburn fan here sitting next to a Florida fan and just talk about both our own internal view of ourselves and maybe the perception of one to the other. So, all right, if you're going to try to encapsulate what it's like to be an Auburn fan, what would you say? Yeah, well, I think most fans, I mean, being a tortured fan is true at every fan base at some level. Uh, But I think that is just so true for an Auburn fan. And one reason I love this question, me and Alan, we are both 38 years old, born the same year, been lifelong fans to our school. And so we have like the same amount of reference points for each school. So the best way I can describe the Auburn mentality, let, let me tell you about our four best years. So our four kind of highlight years of the last 25 or so, and this might shed some light on it. The first was 1993. Auburn went 11-0, and undefeated, yet we were on probation. So I didn't get to, they said, the best team on the radio because we had a TV ban. Uh, even this past Saturday, the 93 Gator team was honored at halftime or at some point because they won the SEC. So as an Auburn fan, I couldn't help but think, 93, that's like one of our best years. That's like in my Mount Rushmore of years. 
And but that's the year Florida gets to honor everybody at halftime for the SEC. Number two was 04. A lot of people probably remember that, the undefeated team in the BCS era that came in third and never got a chance to play for the national championship. So, again, this magical year where everything fell into place, but it ends with this bad taste in your mouth. The third, uh, Nick Marshall's first year, 2013, to beat your two biggest rivals, the Prayer and Jordan Hare, the two Georgia defensive backs jump up, the ball bounces off them in fourth and fifteen. And we run it in for the for the touchdown to win the game. And then, of course, the kick six, beating number one ranked Alabama there. In uh, one of the – maybe the best games I've ever watched as an Auburn fan, uh, only to ride it all the way to the national championship game and lose a heartbreaker on the last second pass Oof. from Jameis Winston to Kelvin Benjamin. Uh, so all those games have been that way. And then last year is another great example, right? Kind of just a ho-hum year. We know we're doing okay, top 25. And we end up beating Georgia and Alabama, our two biggest rivals. They're both essentially number one. Alabama may have been ranked two when we beat them. We beat them in a three-week period. Just an amazing, you know, anybody else, you lose a big game at the end of the year, your, your title hopes are over. We beat them both in three weeks. Amazing feat. Only to a month later, who do we watch in the national championship game? Georgia and Alabama. It's just torturous. So I'd say that's the mentality of an Auburn fan. And you said, how do I feel? Well, you end up every year against your two biggest rivals, Georgia and Alabama. And so your season doesn't mean anything until after that game. So I just kind of sleepwalk through a lot of the season, of course, living and dying each week. But it really doesn't matter until you know what you do against Alabama and Georgia. And it just seems outside of – now, the one season I didn't mention was 2010 – the magical season, we go undefeated, exercise all the demons. It allows me to be able to talk about all those other seasons. Without crying. Without crying. No, it gives me like, it has freed me up. And maybe I'm a bad fan, but I'm like one national championship in my lifetime. I just feel really content with that. It's it's made me a reasonable fan for all the other years. Maybe that makes me a bad fan. I don't know. Okay, before I ask you what your impression of Florida fans are, I'll, I'll try to give my thoughts I mean, I think we're new money. You know, we've been in the SEC a long time, as long as anybody, but mostly been mediocre to bad to maybe every once in a while okay. But then starting with the Spurrier era, it's like we invested in the right stock and boom, we're we're dot-com billionaires or whatever it is. We bought Apple stock at the right moment. And I think here's what Florida fans kind of expect or, or desire – I would say this defines Spurrier as like casual greatness. Like just we're doing it because we're better than you and it's not even really that hard. And if we only won by 10 and we didn't score 50, that's kind of a problem. And you saw that kind of the ambivalence during the Muschamp era or the McElwain era, even if we were winning games, if we weren't seeing the one with Flash and Dash, it was, Dash, it was kind of, I don't know, seemed off or not enough. Uh so that's, I think, our, my internalization as a Florida fan. All right, from the outside looking in, what is an Auburn yes. fan's impression or view of, of, of Florida? This is great. So I love you said casual greatness. Was that the right phrase? Yes. Okay, I love this. From an outsider, casual greatness, we would call that confidence, dare I say even cockiness. Yes. <laughs> and so I have just always admired – I think you kind of like resemble some of these key figures 
in your history like Steve Spurrier. And so just the ability to be so confident in the SEC, my whole life in the SEC, and maybe this is living in Alabama shadow a little bit, which I hate to say, uh, or even just in a, you know, a tough division, I'm always worried we're going to lose to a bad Ole Miss team. We could be playing a hapless Arkansas team in the back of my mind, I just go, this is the game. They're going to put it all together. And we're not going to show up. And we're, I can, like, give you 30 scenarios of how we're going to blow it. So coming to Gainesville six years ago and talking football with people, they're like, no, we should, we should win this game. Or that's no problem. I can remember, I think it was my first Florida UGA game. And, you know, UGA is okay. Georgia's okay. But just knowing this is a big rivalry game, I'm sure you're kind of nervous about it. And you just being like, no, we always beat Georgia. It's cool. And I'm like, what? How, how, what I would give to be able to go into a rivalry game with the confidence of going, no, we're better. We'll probably win. I would, yeah, save a lot of sleep and nerves and probably years at the end of my life. Now, it's funny. I think this last decade has kind of broken a little bit of that in Florida fans that I don't think we have the wake me up when we win 10 games kind of mentality anymore. I think I think we still have the same desires and we would still have the same frustrations if they weren't being met. Like winning ten games with defense is not gonna really cut it still. Those things still apply. But uh, we've kind of joked about not being able to have nice things, like, you know, Will Greer or wins against Kentucky this year, I guess, or whatever it might be. So it's it's changing a little bit, but the DNA is still the same. We still aspire to casual greatness, even if we're not currently experiencing that, obviously. Okay, so if I can say, you know, there's kind of the phrase out there, and it, it maybe applies to different places at different times, like the Auburn syndrome, or maybe Ole Miss is probably actually the the real purveyor of this, that their expected level of success, in my mind, is not commensurate to their current standing. Now, Georgia has this a ton where they're like, Internally, they think that they're the king of the mountain. In reality, it's like you haven't really done anything. You know, you've mostly just lost in big games. Auburn, I think, you know, it feels from an outside, it's part of the reason I love them is that they feel crazy. Like, you're going to win 12 games, then you're going to win three the next year. You're going to win a national championship, then fire your coach two years later. That there's this outsized view of not their importance, but it's almost like they just can't get it together. Like, but there's this gap between maybe where they want to be and where they are. And that's probably driven by Alabama a lot. I understand, but it just seems crazy and chaotic from the outside. Does it feel that way from the inside? Totally. I mean, and we, so we talk a lot of football throughout the year and a lot of times when I ask me in the preseason, what are you thinking about Auburn this year? In the last few years, I've told them the same thing. It's like, I'll just check it. You know, ask me after game three because I'm tired of investing a bunch of time into the Tigers in preseason. Uh, there's been so many times when we hired Gene Chizik in 2008. We said, we're entering a five-year, like, black hole. We're going to be terrible for the foreseeable future. Only to two years later, wake up and win our only national championship. To which we said, we have Malzahn, we have this new system – Man, we can keep this going for five or ten years, I bet. Only to wake up two years later to three wins and a fired coach. It just goes, and we go, okay, now we're back in the five-year black hole. Malzahn shows up, and we go to the national championship that year. It is chaotic, 
And some of that is fun, but some of it is honestly a little too crazy. I would like to be able to, and I love football. I love being able to analyze it and look at it. And it's just, it feels impossible when I'm doing that with Auburn. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah, it's a little bit like Auburn's the guy who partied a little too hard the night before after they won and then wake up and have a lot of regrets the next yes. morning. Uh, I love watching Auburn. They're, they're such a fun team to follow from afar. Um, hopefully Gator Nation can get back to casual greatness where we can just look down with disdain on everyone who's struggling to win games while we cruise to 50 to 7 wins every week. But that's a little further in the future, I think. Yeah, and I would say last thing with Auburn – the two years we went to the national championship game, we were unranked at the beginning of the year. The few years that we've been ranked in the top ten in the first couple of weeks, we fall off a cliff and end up well outside the top 25. So just something to watch as the year unfolds. Okay, so I don't know whether that gives me hope that Gators might resurrect or that maybe it'll be hilarious to see Auburn crash and burn. Not hilarious, but interesting at I least. Gotcha, yeah. Okay, let's turn our attention to the Colorado State Rams from Fort Collins, Colorado, city I love. Florida is favored by 19 and a half. Seems kind of high. We'll see. Head coach is Mike Bobo. You might remember him from being an offensive coordinator at Georgia. This is fourth season, 22 and 20 overall. This year they're 1 and 2. They've lost to Hawaii and a really great game, one of the first games of the season lost to Colorado, but then beat Arkansas 34-27. They've played all good teams so far, or at least named teams. Grover, give us a little bit of a preview of some of their personnel. Yeah, so I think Colorado State, in some ways, is the polar opposite of Kentucky. They want to throw the ball. Last week against Arkansas, they threw it maybe 80% of the time, and most of those passing yards came to one player, Preston Williams, who's a transfer from Tennessee, was a high recruit uh, before Butch left Tennessee, and he caught 12 passes last week, more than double anybody else on the team. He's a big guy, a big target, but I think if there's one thing that I feel comfortable with Florida doing, it's shutting down a receiver on the outside. Now, they gave up some big plays to the safety, but I would feel confident putting one of the corners on him. And really, they haven't done a lot else outside of Preston Williams. So, yeah, their QB is Carter Samuels. You might remember him playing for, I believe, Stanford. But their running back only had nine carries for 27 yards. So that tells you they want to throw the ball way more than they want to pass the ball. We'll see how that goes. Because injuries, Sean Davis, safety still out. Jacob Copeland still out. C.J. McWilliams, backup corner, probable. David Reese looks like he'll be back. CC Jefferson hopefully back from suspension, although who knows. But the big news on this front is Marco Wilson, our star corner, out for the season with an ACL. Man, that was rough to watch. You know, we talked a lot about the biggest place of concern on our depth chart is corner. Great frontline players, really unproven guys behind them. Feels like a combination of Edwards or Dean or McWilliams could maybe fill that role, but it's a big question mark. C.J. Henderson looks like the real deal still. Had some great plays on Saturday, but I think whoever is the backup this week is going to be tested. Okay, let's talk about Florida headed into this game. 
as you think about the Gators, Gerber, what do you feel like their mental state is headed into this game? Yeah, I think uh, the loss to Kentucky does a couple things. One, it again, it bursts the balloon of a quick turnaround, which in some ways might be better long-term. Uh, I think it's easy to to want to get into the mindset that there's one or two tweaks you make, and I think that's out the window now. So I think you're going to see maybe a grittier team, maybe a team uh, more willing to fight than what you saw against Kentucky. But also, I just think it puts a lot of pressure on them because the, the, the question of how high is the floor for this team has not been answered. And really how low is the floor of this team is the new question. And so, look, this is it's a you should you're favored by a good number of points. This shouldn't be a big deal, but just that there's a creeping thought in the back of your head of what if, what if we come out and throw an early interception? What if the game's close at halftime? They're just scenarios you want to stay away from, but I think they start to creep into your head a little bit of you know what does this say about our program? What does this say about where we are if things don't go well early on against Colorado State? Indeed. I don't know what to make of this team mentally right now. This is a huge opportunity for the coaching staff to get in and see who's going to respond to the pressure. Because at the beginning of the season, you're, you know, you're, you're counting the cupcake victories, the Charleston Southern, the Idaho, and Colorado State. Now, Colorado State is not in the same class as those two teams, but they're still not a Power 5 opponent. This is, you know, interesting game because we have this game on our schedule because of the Jim McElwain buyout when we hired him. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to exercise those demons, but I think you're right. It's a little questionable. How do they respond this week? All right, if you're thinking about the Gators, what do we need to do well this week, both in preparation and, you know, living that out on game day? Yeah, I think one is just to stay. I think it's such a big difference when – a Dan Mullen coach team and this Florida team in particular is up by a score, up by 10. Knowing that you can have balance on offense, you can commit more to the run. When you commit more to the run, play action is available. The screen game is available. You can maybe take the top off the defense once or twice because they've had to commit more to the running game. But again, all that depends on staying ahead and not playing from, not having to come from behind at all. So I think just coming out and establishing early a great touchdown drive early would be awesome. Being up by 10, by 13 would be really important. Zooming in on that, I just think watching these last couple games and seeing players like Kadarius Tony, Van Jefferson, Trevon Grimes, you've got to get those guys the ball more. If you go back and watch the Kentucky game, which I'm sure people may not do, I mean, there's a lot of people that – I mean, a lot of those guys were catching the ball two yards behind the line of scrimmage – three yards past the line of scrimmage and just making plays. So I would love to see Mullen work more of that quick passing game in, but also let's line some of those guys up at an H back now and then let's, you know, a speed sweep, anything to get the ball in those guys' hands, I think would be super helpful for this offense going forward. Yeah. If you're a Mullen, what what other fixes would you make to the team? Like both offensively, like strategically or getting the team prepared I mean, because that, that was a pretty tough loss. Yeah, so I again, what's going to like bear fruit, not just this week against Colorado State, but by the time you play FSU, if they still have a football team at the end of the year, or Georgia, or next year, or when these freshmen are seniors, is just going to be getting the grit back in the game. So let's forget about winning the SEC the second game against Kentucky. 
you know, let's just get that grit back in the program, put your head down, work hard, compete against the guy in front of you, fight for the guy next to you. But I think it's just getting that mentality back, uh, not trying to, again, resurrect the program in two weeks, but just that uh, a fighting grit spirit back into the team. On that, would you want to see Trask at all? Are you okay with Franks going forward? That's a great question. I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him play. I don't know that Franks showed me enough in this game that he really is at that next level that we were hoping he was during the Charleston Southern game. So if we saw Kyle Trask, I, I wouldn't feel bad about that. Now, obviously, I think Felipe is a more talented person. He's more athletic. He has a liver arm. But what is Trask like making the reads in the offense? You know, that would be the thing I would want to see. Put him in a situation where he's got to read the defense and what are they giving him and is he responding? Because if he can make quicker, sharper decisions, that might put us in a better position to succeed overall. Yeah, let me ask you one more question about Franks. Watching him, I wonder, is this guy a dual-threat quarterback? Is he? A, do you consider him a good runner, a competent runner? Like sometimes I watch him and think, this guy – he should run more. And other times I'm like, this guy needs to stay in the pocket. What's your thoughts? Well, it depends on what type of runs you're giving him. So he made a zone read where he was hopefully going to pick up four yards and he's like chopping his feet a little bit and got, you know, tangled up and went down for like a one yard game. And that was tough to see because we need him to be a threat running the ball in some of these situations and he's not. But another play where he decides to leave the pocket and takes a wide angle and kind of goes around some people. Once he gets up into a straight line, he's going at a pretty top speed. We've seen him do that several times over the course of the last two years. So, yes, he's a good runner, and no, he's not a good runner. I don't think he's the type of runner Dan Mullen would like to employ. But you've got to have him be a threat, and I don't know if he was a threat at all during that game against Kentucky. All right, let me ask you this. Would you rather see him, would you rather see him run more or less? Is that a tough one? I think more in the right situations, like a quarterback draw where he can just straight line, get after it. Um, if they're really cheating on you know, sending the unblocked end down towards the running back, he can keep it and go. Now, if he's got to make like cuts up tackle or off tackle or between the guard, he, he doesn't have a lot of vision or quickness. So none, none of that, but maybe more of the other – because he has been effective when he's gotten out of the pocket. Gotcha. What about this week? Any keys to victory that you'll be monitoring closely? Well, I would say, one, like we talked about, who's the other corner opposite C.J. Henderson and how they hold up, especially because um, Colorado State looks like they're going to try to throw the ball a lot. Now, maybe they'll watch the Kentucky film and say, hey, we can run the ball more against this front. But I don't know. It seems like they're probably going to pass the ball, which would be more up our alley, I would hope, with us wanting to play nickel, wanting to keep Chauncey Gardner out on the field, and having these guys who can rush the passer, maybe C.C. Jefferson back will make a difference. So to, for us to be successful, I think we'd need those negative plays. We're going to need sacks, tackles for loss, getting them bat, in bad down and distance where we can bring some of those blitzes that we would like to. Kentucky was so far ahead of the – game most of the time and down a distance that we couldn't blitz like we wanted to. So if we can get them into bad positions, I think that will allow us to be successful. And can we run the ball effectively? 
Maybe that's personnel changes. Maybe it's getting Brett Heggie back. Something's got to change up front. We can't just run those same four four to five guys out there and you know expect the same expect anything different because so far they've shown they're not capable of that. Okay, prediction time. Chris, give us a prediction. Who do you expect to win and by how much? Yeah, well, I think obviously I'm going to go with the Gators on this one, and I think they'll be fine. I think Kentucky is a tough team. They are battle-tested, not necessarily this year, but they've been through some wars the past few years. They've got you know a coach that's been there. I think they're a better team uh, than maybe what I was thinking going in. So I think Florida's going to take care of business. I do think they might kick a few more field goals than, than score touchdowns. So I'm thinking something around 23-10, to 26-10, something in that ballpark. That's interesting. I, I'm not going to pick us to cover. I don't think I can, in good conscience, pick us to win by 19 points. Maybe we will. At this point, I, I couldn't say that. I'm looking at something like 27-17. Maybe they'll put up more points than that. Maybe we will, too. But until I see our offense capable of that, I don't think I can pick it. Until I see our defense you know, really perform at a level – that's commensurate to their talent. I don't think so. I mean, Kentucky didn't put up that many points. I mean, that was a lot. They really put up 20. It wasn't 27 or whatever the final score was. Um, that was, you know, a fluky play at the end of the game. But I will take the Gators. I'm much more worried about this game than I was two weeks ago. It seemed like ho-hum. Uh, but there needs to be some urgency out of the team this weekend. Okay, Grover, let's look at the national games this week. Walk us through some of the bigger games of the weekend. Okay, a fun game. Uh, West Virginia, minus three and a half against NC State. So if James were here, he'd be so excited about Will Greer and all the numbers he's putting up. Um, I get sadder about it. He loves it. I think his favorite player of all time is Will Greer. Ask him about that. I'm going to have to take West Virginia here. NC State's talented. They have a decent quarterback. This is on the road. But I don't know that NC State is going to be able to keep pace with what West Virginia can produce on offense. I agree. I think West Virginia covers, though watching them this year, I feel like they're much more concerned with generating a Heisman campaign than actually threatening to win the Big 12. Uh, uh, or Shots? Yeah. I mean, I just – the way they call the game, and with that, I feel like they're much more concerned with, yeah, a Heisman campaign. We'll see. Another game, this was touted as the trilogy game. Uh, it's a little bit of a sad trilogy at this point, but USC at Texas, Texas favored by three and a half. This was probably a hard line to put together. I don't know why you would favor either of these teams over the other one. So if I'm getting points, I guess Texas, but I would stay far, far away from this game. Both these teams have not looked anything like their fan bases would hoped. Anemic on offense, pedestrian on defense, so... Oh, I guess I'll take Texas. Okay, I think I'm in that same boat. That Texas, I think, showed a little more up and down, so maybe you'll hit them on an up week this time. Uh, it does feel like a sad shadow of who they used to be, both USC and Texas. Are you a believer in Tom Herman? Are you like hopeful for Texas moving forward? You know, I'd like to say yes, but the one thing they have in common are these coaches that go to Texas that are the next best thing. And flame out. So I, you know, how many times do we need to see this story of a coach going to Texas 
and it not happening. I don't know what the problem is there. It's really confusing, especially to see teams like A&M or Baylor or Texas Tech or even SMU find success. Meanwhile, the University of Texas just continues year after year to, to, to trip up and, and not reach any of those expectations. Yeah, I don't know. The <laughs> Texas fans were already freaking out in that first game against Maryland, so it's not a happy time right now. But a win against USC would right a lot of those feelings, I think. All right, Ohio State, they're going to be favored by 11.5 at TCU. So still no Urban in this game. TCU, I mean, the most chronically underrated program in America, Gary Patterson, you know, one of the best coaches, has this team ready to go every week. I don't know if they can compete with Ohio State if Ohio State is right. Even at 11.5, I'm tempted to take Ohio State, and I think I will. That's good. I'm going to be on the other side of this one and go TCU. There's just enough variables, uh, enough unknown with Ohio State, and enough that I do know about TCU and Gary Patterson and playing at home that I feel like the safe pick on this one is TCU. The next one, Alabama, minus 21 at Ole Miss. What do you make of this one? I mean, Ole Miss has had so many fun results against Alabama that I'm so intrigued by this game. They're putting up points like crazy does Bama short circuit that I don't think Ole Miss is going to be able to stop Bama at all. And that leads me to think that they're not going to be able to put up those kind of points that they would need to, to, to keep pace. So 21 is a kind of a high number, but gosh, I mean, can you, how do you not take Bama? I don't know. I'll go Bama. Uh, let me ask you a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. A hypothetical fantasy draft, Tecmo Bo, Madden, okay. Madden, Michael Vick, Tua against this Ole Miss defense. <laughs> Tua, who had the highest Heisman odds before ever playing a game. I mean, either we're right and he's the second coming or he's about to be go for a big fall. Of course, Tecmo Bo, Bo the best all-time video game player of, all, of any generation, sure. Sure. of course. Yeah, so I think if you're Will Greer at West Virginia, this game scares you because I think Tua's going to put up some stats here. Um, I'm going to go Alabama. I've just seen too many teams that put up big numbers against other teams, and that translates to like zero or three against Alabama. So the the level is so much higher on defense that I think there's a team like Ole Miss that, yeah, you can hang 70-something on a smaller school and you go against the talent and athleticism that Alabama has, and it just translates – nothing translates. So I could easily see this one in the 30s to seven or three – and think Alabama covers. Yeah, Bama. I mean, I hate it every week. I know you hate yes. it every week. But it's hard to pick against them. They just continue to roll teams. And even if it's close in the first half, mm-hmm. that they're just going to start to pick apart what Ole Miss is going to do. All right. Uh, game of the day. Yeah, game of the day. No. <laughs> in my world, it is. LSU at Auburn. Auburn favored by 10. Interesting. I think you have to favor Auburn here. Even though LSU looks great against Miami, Auburn has has a win that's as good as anybody in the country's by beating Washington. If this was at LSU, I would be interested in taking LSU here. Auburn favored by 10. If Auburn's going to win, I feel like it's going to be by 10 or more. And if they lose, maybe even LSU by 10 or more, because that's just the way these games can go. But I'm going to take Auburn in the 10 points. 
LSU, I'm not quite believing in Coach O. I want to see them go against a team like Auburn who's seems like they're ready for the moment. So what about you? How are you feeling about Auburn right now? Yeah, so this is always a game early in the season that is the measuring stick game for both Auburn and LSU. You know, there's always a couple games before it, but this is usually the first big SEC clash. So I think we're going to learn the most uh, from both teams this weekend and will at least give us an early entry into what we're looking at this year. If I was picking a spread, I think I would have gone Auburn minus three, maybe four, maybe four and a half. Ten feels like a ton against an LSU defense. I will say traditionally this is one of those series that the home team typically wins. So we typically win when it's at Auburn. We typically lose when it's in Baton Rouge. So I think we win. I just don't think it's going to be by 10 points. And so I will take Auburn to win, but LSU to cover that 10. Interesting. I I will be watching closely. That's usually one of my favorite games of the year. I think it will tell us a lot about both teams. I mean, was it last year that was – Two years ago, that was the loser leaves town match, yeah. was, and it was like you know Les Miles and and yeah, uh, Malzahn. Like, now they're in a totally different place. They're in a totally different place. Crazy what one game can do. I mean, Les Miles still unhired, right? Yeah, just doing weird stuff on the internet, I guess. Chris, thanks so much for being here for helping me host this podcast, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it so much. Hopefully James survives and we'll be back next week. If not, I guess I'll move on and find some other stellar podcaster. Anyway, thanks for all your support, guys. We'll see you soon. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.